0: This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom, as Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks a revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Chapter 1 Uma of Ulali. I was a goddess once, and Uma, my beloved, my betrayer. Cold as the moon was my Uma's intensity. From the moment we met, I wanted to dissolve in her. My gathering storm. And when the end of Uma's world began, my own drowned too. Perhaps you have someone like this, a shadow to your soul. The sun and moon can never be one, but they are entangled, one forever falling after the other. Or perhaps they are running to their drowning. Lovers can be like that. You sure this is what you want? My Uma said. Yes, I said. But love rises. We rise in love. And I love my girl, my monster. This is why I tell our tale. To find our broken thread. And save our unwoven worlds. In the beginning, Uma was but a doubt-riddled girl. As dawn slid across the coast of evening's kingdom like a blade from its sheath, silvering the ancient castle Ulali, she snuck down the tower stairs, her pet catling at her heels. Everyone she loved would die that day, but Uma didn't know that yet. The morning was still night cool, and the painted blues and seagrass greens of the medina blurred around them as they ran joyfully towards the dunes. In the distance was the ocean singing, and bracelets of wet salt air danced beneath her spiked, glinting bangles. And Uma pretended she was free. Faster, Isla. Come on, faster. From the port below came the cries of ocean birds and merchants, waking their world up with song. The castle guards waved down as Uma and Isla raced past, the stubborn, dreamy, always-alone girl in her lane a pale and graceful blur alongside her. They ran through the township outside the castle walls, past the wet carts of fish, crabs, and flowering mosses. They scrabbled up the soft, red dunes overlooking the harbor, free and fast and getting farther, away from her heartbeat of failing. Sadness. The thousand ways Uma knew she wasn't measuring up. For a moment, it all swept away to mist. Just a dream she'd had about being a girl. And Uma's yellow cat eyes were bright fires again, lighting back the dark as the sun roared up on the horizon like a scythe. Isla purred up against her, and she reached back to pet him. I love you, fish breath, she said. Isla butted his great white catling's head under her slender arm. Of course, he loved her too. The Wutar people cherish their catlings they race them across sand and sea, hunting them into open waters. Endless is their delight in the variety of their catlings' coats, in the flat white of catlings pale as seashells, red as lust or warmly gleaming like the dawn, catlings spangled grey like mackerel skies, or blackly slinking like onyx. There are as many hues to catlings as there are to the human heart. Agile, carnivorous, and never to be left alone with children. When a catling senses fear or hesitation in her handler, she reverts wild. Many an untended child has toddled into the fangs of a blood-roused catling. But Isla, who one day emerged from the sea like a wave cap come to life, The leggy catkin came tumbling after Uma onto the shore with such adoring intensity that there was no question Isla was hers from the moment he appeared. A gift from the spirits, the people said. The child is blessed. The two were instantly inseparable, rolling in the sand, racing into the water, a private language of wafts and sighs. After that, The other children did not dare to play with Uma. The once wild Isla was her only friend. Walking with him now, Uma clenched her fists, tears sparking to her eyes. The castle's shadows spooled across the port below while the dunes rolled, red as heart's blood, in every direction. Her cloak snapped and spread like ink above the sands. Behind them, The castle Ulali bore the claw marks of the ages, with scars so deep that ocean birds made their nests in the worn stone and the mosses waved down like mist. When a person stood just beneath the turrets, latticed there by sun and shadow, the sweetness of the moss, the eternity of stone and the salty air all braided together in a bright, pale scent that lived in them ever after. A starlight that invaded your dreams, spelling Ula Lee's people back home, no matter how far they strayed. This was why Uma ran from the castle walls, to escape that starry, betraying scent. She wanted to be as far away from it as possible. Far from the joyful port, where Wutar and Chiriclo ocean merchants sang together about snowy wastelands and enchanted woods of the mysterious weddings of gods and weathers. Having the right song at the right time was a merchant's passport and lifeline. Preventing mutiny, murder, bad luck, and mayhem, it could open doors to secret islands, endless riches. The best merchants always had the best songs, and all her life Uma had loved to lie with her mother in the beach grass. Listening there in that meeting of three worlds. Sun, stone, and moss. She wanted to be as far away from it now as possible because sickness had taken the castle. And now not even daily offerings could tempt mercy from the gods. It hurt Uma to know that the shadow of her people stood so light upon the sands. She wanted to impose her will on the world. To force it into the shape of her dreams. She couldn't bear to witness anything less. But if she knew it would be the last time she saw Ula Li until she returned many years later at the head of a ragtag rebellion, she might have gazed on it longer. But in life, all chapters end long before we can understand they are even coming towards their close. Isla walked behind her, nudging her hands, wickering invitingly. He wanted to run with her down the dunes to the shore, so fast it felt like flying. Uma's cloak soaring out behind them like the floating scarves the sun herself wore as she took herself across the sky. But his girl was different now. The heavy, protective bangles at Uma's wrists and ankles winked merrily in the sunlight like the waves below her scarlet cloak snapping in the wind. But she was silent. So Isla snuffled along after her, quirking his tail to amuse himself. He heard the sound before Uma did. When her catling turned his head, Uma did too, and saw it sparking across the air, small and red, hurtling straight towards them. An insect, its wings hissing like flames. What's this? Uma said, her hands stretching out in welcome. Little brother, you're far from home. You'll die out this way, little one. There's no fire, no gnats out here for you to eat. She held the firebug up, studying him. Uma wore a small leather keep bag filled with talismans. If the bug died, she would put him inside it. She admired his tenacity, even if his journey was foolish. Well... You're alive yet, aren't you? She said. A wave crashed below, and Uma remembered a bygone day, her mother tossing a beached fish back into the water. We could keep it to eat, Mama, Uma had said. But we aren't hungry right now, her mother said, my little one, and everything loves to be alive. Uma shook her head, not wanting to remember anything more. One memory always led to another, and the terrible absence was already flooding in, river cold. The firebug tickled down the side of her hand, prickling her fresh tattoo. It was a long line that ran up the sides of each of Uma's hands, all the way up her arms, and then down her sides to her slender, outermost toes, in honor of her mother's passage beyond the world. Aunt Inga had tattooed the journey marks with the sharpened end of a heavy bone dipping the radius repeatedly into a ceremonial bowl of ash mixed with Iko's blood. While Uma lay head-to-head head beside her mother's wrapped body, her elderly ants arrayed all around them in a loving circle, just as they had the night Uma was born. But now, the ants sang for Iko's safe passage instead, their voices quavering but strong. In rhythm with Inga's steady hand as the old warriors stitched Uma with blood and ink. A map of love and grief. Tradition. Without tattoos, Uma. We are invisible to the gods, Inga said lightly, wanting to make Uma smile. For the child lay so still alongside her mother's body, as if she were dead too. All except for her eyes. They were hot rivers, each of them, spilling into the girls' ears. Because Uma knew the gods saw everything. They saw everything and knew everything. And yet, they'd let her mother die. Hold still, Inga said. Relax your hands. There you go. Relax into the pain, child. Don't fight it. These marks mean she'll live on in you, Uma. What is real never ends. Uma closed her eyes. That's just something people say. Chapter 2 Aunt Inga All energy is connected. A vast web of asking. Of paths taken and lost. We are all both weaver and silk. And we are the weaving itself. So it is now, and always was, even in the first of times. And so it was in the castle Ulali, where my Uma was born late at night, during a summer storm. Her aunts laid her, mewling and star-shaped, in her mother's arms, and Aiko looked down into her daughter's wild moon eyes. Oh, my baby... The girl's eyes were fierce and searching, even then, when Uma was so new in the world. Like twin lanterns in the night sky. For the child was blue as rain, as if she were born of stormlight and scarcely human at all. This last-born shaman to the house of reaping sons. Outside their tower came down the drumming, devouring rain. Moonlight drowned green as the wind came gloating off the summer storm like a parade. Flying in colors from a thousand shores. Trash clattered and tore across the rooftops. Broken caravan wheels, a single leather shoe. The hopes and unlaid ghosts from mothers of all nations. My baby. Ico surged with love, gazing down at the tiny thing mewling against her. Her sisters arrayed around them like smiling stars. Their soft, woolly hair damp with sweat and happiness and the closeness of the room. The wind howled the shutters open and closed, letting the fresh ocean air lick inside salt bright and clean. Her name is Uma, Aiko said, snuggling her daughter. Bridge into the mystery. Inga placed her hand on Uma's forehead. A strong name. Perhaps she will be a great healer, like her mother. But all bridges have two faces, as the story will show. Uma both was, and was not, a great healer. No, it was many years later, and Aiko was dead. Inga stood alone in the kitchen door of the House of Reaping Sons half in shadow and half in the morning light. The earthen mug in her hands was warm with the bitter broth of roots and herbs her sister Aiko had favored until the day she died. The sharp, musky, damp wood scent always seemed to fill up their whole house, languorous and insistent as Aiko herself. Inga hated it. Ever since they were girls, she famously avoided the house whenever Aiko made a day of grating the root, drying the strips over the fire. How she used to laugh, seeing Inga wrinkle her nose at the smell when she returned home. Inga looked out at their swept courtyard, raising her cup to the memory, and drank the bitter ghost. The prayer flags Iiko had dyed and stitched smiled back at her, waving from the small potted fruit trees atop the broken old flagstones. Gentle Iiko who always seemed to find her flow, adapting gracefully to change. Protected by the singing sands on one side and the coastline of evening's kingdom on the other, the castle Ulali was the final stronghold of the Wutar people and had enjoyed generations of peace. And so, after spending their youths as merchant warriors abroad, the sisters returned home, Aiko taking up needle and thread without complaint. Even so, until Aiko's dying day, each morning she shaved herself and her child Uma bald with pumice stones. For God's damned if any Yang soldiers would ever catch them by the hair. Inga moved her fingers across the smooth, warm ceramic cup as if she could still massage her sister's weary scalp. She found herself speaking to the bitter steam, as if Aiko herself once more stood behind her. I failed you, my sister. She knew what Aiko would say. It was my time. We fought so many things together, Inga. But in the end, sleep comes for us all. Inga shook her head. I should have been able to, but the gifts never worked properly for one's own family. Inga's ability to extract illness, Aiko's skill in connecting seekers with their spiritual allies when it came to healing or helping a family member. They could not. And there were no longer any other healers alive in Ulali to help them. The steam faded out into the courtyard. As it disappeared, Aiko's voice seemed to whisper one last time into Inga's ear. Raise her up strong. Like you, my sister. Inga placed her cup down gently. She is strong. The strongest. Like you. Chapter 3. Two Travelers The winding, ancient alleyways of Palmstone were sweet with the fragrant medicinal oil that drew rich travelers from every corner of Nor kingdom. Here in Palmstone, artists and herbalists sold their wares late into the hot night, as if the desert villages starving nearby did not even exist. Oh, drought be damned, when here in Palmstone were endless smilers reaching deep into their endless fat purses. To the two dusty Chiriclo travelers, the well-fed people of Palmstone looked like living idols as they swayed past them warily in the torchlight. Their long braids beaded with lustrous abalone, their necks adorned with grand angular necklaces of feather and stone. Every villager's lock and nail was wrapped in jewelry to snare more good luck, more than the great good luck the Palmers already had. They had full bellies, full purses, and healthy families, and dancers whirled without a care inside one packed tavern after another, their laughter flickering out like golden scarves. But the two Chiriclo men swept past these taverns and swept past the carpet cellars and their offers of hot tea. Past the glossy girls coaxing shadows from their lanterns and the bathhouses sweet with oily smoke. Past the bright cafes and Bakefoot cellars and the flocks of tiny dark-haired cast pods of children laughing doorway to doorway, their hoods falling back from damp faces the men strode deeper into the heart of the medina, between stained tents chawling across alleys and doorsteps into the sharper scents of uncurried catlings. Fry bread, kiln smoke, silence. The taller man was long-waisted and lean, with a wide, handsome mouth and large, slow-lidded eyes. Like most Jerichlo, his skin was dark as oiled wood, And richly creased by the desert sun. But his eyes were river cold, and his smile was faithless. His name was Ogadai, and the Yang children flew from him like birds. Ogadai wore trousers, with sturdy desert boots lashed up to his knees, and a woven shirt tucked almost primly into his belt. His shirt was wrapped all the way up to his neck and the color of all that he wore was like shadowed bone, so that his long, narrow body shone in the darkness of the alley. He wore no cloak, for the night was warm and windless between the alley walls, and Ogadai always preferred the open air anyway. Honest air, scented only by what it was and not what the artists of Palmstone wished it to be. He strode unhurriedly, enjoying himself as one villager after another seemed to freeze and then crouch before them, as if caught in his stare. As if they could escape only if Ogedei deigned to let them pass. His stare as they fled was mocking and indifferent, as the desert itself was indifferent. It was as if Ogedei saw straight through to all a man's secrets. And here in Palmstone, as in all Yang villages, A stranger who saw too deeply brooked no good. Crimes were tried by the royal oligarchs, but punishment was meted out by the executioners, a task so dirty it fell to the Chiriclo. So, it was not truly Ogadai's stare which frightened the Palmers. It was his enormous wooden staff, laden with the scalps of the dead, each lashed to the wood with a strip of rough, tawny hide. Not all Chiriclo were executioners, It was a privileged position passed down within a caravan, and those elected to be the death dealers displayed their executioner's staffs before their wagons with pride, signaling their readiness at any time for royal commission. Ogadai swung his staff out before him with relish, proud of its weight. The beautiful golden man swaggering beside Ogadai was his opposite in every way. Tolu was younger, fluid, and well-muscled, his skin the same deep gold as a highly-born monk. His long, elegant eyes were emphasized with a coal he'd made from ash and his locks hung gleaming almost to his waist. The freckles scattered across Toulouse's nose and cheekbones made him seem frolicsome, almost mischievous in spite of his aloof expression, and his eyes were merry as if letting you in on a secret. Toulouse swung his own staff lightly, Yet his was the far heavier with scalps. Between the two executioners, the protege had long succeeded his master. The hair of the slain wrapped Toulouse's staff entirely, all sizes and lengths, some even Chiriclo. The longest brushed the ground alongside him as Toulouse sauntered the narrowing alley with regal indifference. He was a study in contrasts, Toulouse with his trousers fitted but low-slung, made from a soft, buttery tan fabric that gleamed in the torchlight, but was filthy with dust. His beautiful jacket was proudly embroidered with lucky runes, but this he wore torn open to the night air. A thick coin necklace jingled across Toulouse's bare chest, and a long scarf swathed his neck, tugged flashily off to one side, as if daring anyone to touch him but no one would. There was only one reason Chiriclo executioners would search so far into a medina, and no Yang dared find out if they were it. People hurried out of their path, trying not to catch their eyes. Executioners were paid handsomely by King Tensing for the carnivalesque troubles they took, executing the convicted. The Yang always flocked to watch, and afterwards, to buy the spices and sundries the Chiriclo peoples collected on their wandering way. But to catch on the end of an executioner's gaze, one might as well lie down in his grave. They sped out of the executioner's way, glancing their prayers up to Goddix, and a young torchkeep named Monac was no exception. But Monac was lighting torches down one of the long chutes of the medina, with no nearby crossroads to slip off into. He was trapped. He flattened against the wall, holding his torch shakily off to one side, desperately averting his eyes. But the Deathbringer stopped, directly in front of him. Manak stared down at the men's tall, dusty boots, praying to Godix for mercy. He blinked rapidly as the promises in his head became more desperate. Please not me. Please not now. Was that blood on their boots? His pulse surged. <clears throat> said the golden executioner politely. Yes, Manak said quickly, his voice thin and nervous. He slid his gaze up to meet theirs. There's an herbalist who lives out this way, whose husband was sick, Ogadai said. A traveling healer helped him recover. We're looking for her. Where is she? Manak goggled at Ogadai. But you're Cheerclo. I take it he's seen the show. Tulu said, dryly. Manak looked down quickly, shaking his head. He would never go to an execution. He didn't believe in them. And he could well imagine what Shirklo might do to a Wutar healer out on her own. Never mind what Shirklo executioners might do to her. That was far worse than what might happen with Yang's soldiers here and there. If the healer could just be left alone to do her work, there were few enough Wutar left in the world as it was. Manak went on, shaking his head. He was terrified, but stubborn. We don't want to hurt her, Toulouse said softly. His voice was wonderful, low and resonant. I need her help. Monak's friend had already described to him how the crowd surged towards this golden man. All fallen silent as spellbound children, pressing closer just to hear the executioner speak. Perhaps the man did terrible things to flesh with stones and sticks and whatever else it was executioners used, but in spite of himself, hearing Toulouse's voice now, Manak found himself doing the same thing, drifting much closer than he meant to. Manak looked up into the carnivaler's eyes. Toulouse smiled down at him gently. His two front teeth overlapped slightly, almost boyishly. His brown eyes were insouciant and bold, yes, but... Behind the executioner's pretended indifference, and his beautiful eyes was a steady, immeasurable sadness. Monak had his family at home to think of, and a sick husband at that. The last thing he needed was any trouble, and yet, he felt strange, powerful sympathy for this stranger. Are you? All right, sir, he said, softly. Tulu glanced away. I'm trying to be. He paused. We were told she could help me. Manak looked hesitantly over at Ogadai. The girl? She might. I've never seen her myself. You swear you'll not hurt her. The thing is, I'm saving for her service myself. My husband is sick and there aren't many Wutar left. There might not be any left. Besides her. Toulouse's dark eyes held Manak's own. And I... I shouldn't be talking to you. Manak glanced away again, thinking. The Chiriclo were frightening, but the terrible need he saw in this man reminded him of his own husband. He was so frightened of something, it was eating away the light behind his eyes. There are rules as to how you approach her, Manak said, finally. She hides in the boneyard. But it is her decision whether or not to work with you, and so... You won't hurt her, Ogadai broke in sharply. This is a Wutar vampire we're talking about. Do you understand that? He said. They heal because they drink. They're utterly capable of defending themselves. And more. The flame of Manak's torch hissed in the silence. His thoughts spun. The lights would be going out without his tending, and Palmstone could not be left to the dark. Tolu was somber. Please don't mind, Ogadai. Tell me the rules. As it turned out, they'd passed the vampire's lair. The archway that led into the boneyard was concealed behind long, hanging carpets, Monak told them. At the end of a dark alley, the executioners doubled back and stopped before it, their movement making the shell ropes click gently in the breezeless dark. Ogadai lifted the edge of a carpet, admiring its soft pattern of cups and ferns. Lalora would like this, he said. Should I trade you for it? (laughs) Perhaps the vampire will prefer the taste of you, Tulu said, but I'll see your carpet makes its way to Lalora. Ogadai snorted, and they ducked underneath, sneezing at the dust. As it fell back in place behind them, the shell ropes clicked again, alerting whatever slept in the dark. Though the executioners stepped into what seemed to be an empty courtyard, they knew they were watched. They dropped to their knees as Manak instructed, extending their hands out before them like beggars as they moved humbly into the center of the silent, dusty clearing, their heads bowed, and the dark windows circling them were not blind. We come in peace, great lady, Ogadai said, raising his face. Only... To seek your blessings. We bear gifts. He felt Talu watching him and turned to see the younger man grinning over at him like a fool, his arms dangling impudently at his sides. The gifts, Talu, Ogadai said in a low voice, furious. But Talu did nothing, grinning at him like a broken squash, pretending not to scold the gravity of the situation. Ogadai snatched the offerings out from Talu's open jacket, as if the vampire weren't watching them this moment, deciding whether they would live or die. And all this risk was for Tolu to begin with. Ogadai spread the faded red cloth out in the dirt. Tobacco for your spirits. Great lady. He lifted the fragrant bundle of leaves up for her inspection. And then laid it out reverently before them. In sweet fang oil. Ogadai bowed lower. Holding the vial up over his head. Great lady, we've traveled to every shore of Tensingland, Every temple and every cliff. And this is the finest fang from shore to shore. We have ever encountered. Well, may it please you. He glanced over to Tulu to see if he had anything to add, but the younger man was silent. At least his head was bowed now. Fit for a queen, Ogadai finished, lamely. Well, may it please you. He bowed again, and then they backed away carefully, still on their knees. And Ogadai thought he saw the vampire. There, in the very farthest corner of the courtyard, blanketed in shadows. Only as they ducked beneath the tapestry and back out into the alley did Ogadai dare a sharper glance into the darkness. And there it was, sliding closer along the wall. Just a tree, just leaves in the wind, Ogadai told himself nervously. But it wasn't. Chapter 4 When the tapestry fell and they stood again outside in the alley, Tulu began to laugh. The sound was shrill and panting, echoing out against the palm stone walls like screams. Tulu laughing and laughing and not able to stop. Ogadai's scalp prickled up with fear. He put his hand on Tulu's shoulder, trying to steady him. When that didn't work, he shoved Tulu into the wall, pressing him into it. The surface was hand-sculpted, smooth and satin-cool. Like everything in palmstone, it was glazed with the palm oil that purified, grounded, and united the villagers. Ogadai hated the yang and their yang magic, but in this moment, he wanted to believe in their healing oil. Easy, brother. Easy, he said. It was a moment before the oil worked through Tulu. Talou said, finally. You're okay, Ogadai said, still wanting to believe. And Tulu nodded. They left the Medina, and as soon as they were outside Palmstone's walls, the comfort from just seeing their caravan in the distance worked through Ogadai as surely as the magic oil had worked into Tulu. Ogadai could see his family's silhouettes swaying around their night fire like a scatter of wildflowers. The woman's colorful, braided dresses, the men relaxed and shirtless in their soft, loose trousers, all of them laughing happily in the open wind. The Yang aren't all bad, is all I'm saying, he heard his daughter say, merrily. Then came an older voice, lush and modulated, his little aura. Well, everybody's someone's reason to smile, my girl. All I'll say is this, Fern. If a Yang winks at you, duck. Then Fern lit up, Seeing the two men approach and Lalora turned beaming to welcome them home. But Tulu and Ogadai were silent all that night fire and told no tales, not even when Yang visitors came slinking by to see what the Chiriclo might have for trade. A story from Tulu always pricked a buyer's senses. He could send up the price of an ordinary spice to triple its value, sometimes even more. People need stories, was how Tulu explained this to Fern. They need stories just as much as they need food and water. Think about it. Meat cooked in milk tastes better. He laughed. Which is perverse, when you think about it. But never mind. The thing is, they're glad to pay. Then here's to the milk. May it never run dry, Fern said. But that was before. Now Ogadai had no carnivalry, and Tulu was silent. When the little children of Palmstone crept close, daring each other in as children always did, Tulu only threw shadow cones into the flames for them, making them laugh as the shadows and lights sparked up towards the stars. They did a little trading, but only tit for tat. Spices for meat, dried fish for salves, this cloth for that one. At least his people could eat proud another night, Ogudai thought. But if the Wu healer could not help Tulu, they could scarcely afford to stay together. He looked at Tulu, stretching out now to sleep on the ground outside his red wagon, Lamados. He'd taken to sleeping rough again, like the wild boy he'd been before Ogadai recognized Tulu's potential and folded him into the family. This was a slap in the face to Ogadai and the respectability of their caravan, of everything he'd worked so hard to secure for Tulu. After night fire inside his own wagon with Lelora, Ogadai smacked their shutter closed. He makes us look a disgrace. The villagers already think we're no better than animals. How can we expect them to see us as equals when they see a dirty grown man sleeping out like a pig? Lelora calmly opened their shutter again. It's too hot, Ogadai, she murmured, and there is no one awake to see him. Long pendant earrings glittered against Lelora's tea colored shoulders. Her hair was woolly and fragrant, like cocoa and cedar, the tip's sun-bleached, pale as candle flames. She had fog-colored eyes, fog-colored moons to her nails, and those nails flashed as she lifted her hand, covering a scorched sigh. Her large eyes against her narrow, sharply drawn face looked seemingly pensive beneath her soft cloud of hair. But when in a mood, LeLora smote with a glance. She was their caravan's own weather. "'No respectable trader will want to waste time with us,' Ogadai said. "'And I don't want to have to look at him. He just does so I have to see him.' "'So lie down and close your eyes,' LeLora said." Ogadai knew he sounded like a child, but he went on anyway. It had been a long day taking care of Tolu, and now he wanted to be tended to himself. "'He wants me to have to step over him in the morning.' As if I should feel guilty, he's sleeping rough. There's no reason he can't sleep inside Lamados. He isn't drunk. He hasn't even been drunk for, I don't even know. Lallora looked at him. Maybe sometimes it's easier to fall asleep when you can hear the voices of the people you love around you. Talou is alone, except for us, Ogadai. Ogadai snorted. All that damn work on Lamados, and he doesn't even use it. Lalora flicked her hand gracefully, turning away. We're all unfaithful to something, she said. Instantly, Ogadai softened, wrapping an arm around her waist. He tipped his head into her soft hair, breathing her in. "Come here, my wife." "Wasn't it for me?" Lalora said, smiling. "Promises, promises, which I always keep." "Come to bed, my wife." "You're right. The window stays open." They lay down, and he rested his head in her lap. Lalora rubbed his shoulders. Well, may you die a stubborn old man, my husband. But may I die older than you, so you will never have to live without me. Ogadai reached up, cradling her cheek, and LeLora smiled down at him. Her hair was like a darker velvet to the night, a sheltering aura all around her. Outside, the locusts sang, and their wagon creaked, cooling from the day's heat. He felt his heart swell. I would be lost without you, Ogadai said. He often felt like a prisoner in a children's tale, as if he'd fallen asleep within the certainty of adolescence, only to wake up and find himself thirty years later, his same self but in a tired body with creaking bones. All certainty rivered away from him like youth itself. But Ogadai did not believe in children's tales, or in much at all. He only believed in Lalora. As her parents kissed at the other end of the wagon, Fern flopped over towards the wall, rolling her eyes. But she was smiling. Her parents were still as in love as if they were teenagers. And all Fern's life, they'd made it clear that they loved their children, but they loved each other more. In all the world, there is only my one Ogadai. Lalora would tease, her eyes sparkling. And we can always make more of you, my love, so stay close to the caravan. If you get lost, we're not coming back for you. Chapter 5. Inga. Inga poured the broth back into the pot and went out into the courtyard, scattering dinner's vegetable cuttings for the animals. She tugged her milking stool from lope to lope, filling the leathern grate bag with which she would hang up in the kitchen's doorway letting the milk grow tart and sour with life-giving warmth, thickening in the sun until it became milk. Occasionally, and on festival days, she squeezed a little extra fruit into it, making the milk stronger. The morning air was cool and pleasant through her old caftan, and the lope leaned into her shoulder peacefully, chewing sweet hay. It was strange how sadness let the beauty in, Inga mused like light falling through trees' wool, making the beauty strange for the absences in it. Now the weave of their family would pull looser every day until finally all their shadows were gone from the world and only light remained where once their weaving had been. Well then, we will walk in the light and see what there is to see, Inga said to herself. The lope chewed on, undisturbed. Inga often thought aloud, but then a big gull startled up into the air and Inga clattered up onto her feet. Scram! She righted her great bag quickly before it could spill and stood rolling her shoulders. Maybe she'd visit the port today. The merchant's songs always made her heart dance. And perhaps the new woman she'd seen, the beautiful one with the freckles and the red mouth, would be there. But then the screaming began. It came from the watchtower, Inga knew instantly what it was. The warning stones hadn't turned since she was a child, but their scream was unforgettable. She raced inside up the dark, circular stairs to their rooftop, banging on her sister's bedroom door as she flew past. Wake up, wake up, quickly! Inga's heart battered wildly as she ran up and out onto the rooftop to see why the alarm was sounding. And that was where elderly Leluja, gentle and confused, found her. Inga sat on the ledge, their laundry snapping around her like storm clouds. She was staring down at a great darkness that now is foaming straight towards Ulali from across the singing sands. The warning stones of the outer walls screamed on and on, faltering only when the castle guards slowed to catch their breath. One of them, Inga knew, was her old friend Kojo. The alarm was calling all the villagers within the castle walls. Soon the guards would need to close the gates, and Uma was still outside. Is it a test? Leluja said, knowing it wasn't. Inga shook her head. Leluja sat beside her, looking down at the oncoming darkness. So many of them, she said. Leluja always slept more or less dressed with her braids neatly wrapped. She wore her long, elegantly trailing necklaces for protection even when she slept. But this morning, the neck of her captain was askew on her shoulder. Exposing her elderly, delicate neck in a way Inga hadn't seen since they were children. Inga was older, but Leluja always seemed wiser than Inga ever felt. Much too many, Inga said. Leluja placed her hand on Inga's arm. And Uma? We must... She's on the dunes with Isla. She'll be back. Perhaps not, Laluja said. Now Yanla and Baloo came running up onto the ledge too the both of them wrapped in scarves and barefoot, their eyes round with fear. No, Ilonya was saying, holding out her palms as if that might change things. No, no, no. Inga looked at Leluja. She took her sister's hands and pressed them to her own cheeks, closing her eyes, shaking her head back and forth softly. Below them, catlings screamed as the invading army catapulted the harbor with oil bombs. Two ships bolted, but too late. They erupted into flames. Uma will be back, Inga heard herself say. She'll be back, and then we will all go together. Chapter Six, Uma. Uma shaded her eyes, squinting down at the dust storm which had suddenly squalled up around Ulali. It took a moment for her to comprehend it. The storm was made of soldiers, of Yang, and their great war poles swinging. The heavy carts waited full of weaponry drawn by monstrous lizards scrabbling across the hot sands. Uma leapt onto Isla's back, the firebug instantly forgotten inside her cloak. As Isla raced forwards, they saw Yang warships cresting the horizon, curving towards their shore. The Yang army was vast, many times wider across than Ulali itself. The Yang people had outnumbered the Wutar for generations. It was the Yang, in fact, who had first drove them here, to Evening's Kingdom, the very outer edge of the known world. As they burst towards home, Uma saw the castle in a new light, how they were trapped in the same place they'd flowered, locked between sand and sea, as if they'd been cultivated only to slaughter. The warning stones screamed as they ground against one another, warning the villagers to take refuge within Ulali's walls. Andahar, it was like Andahar, all over again. It was such an old story she'd almost forgotten it was true, that it could happen again. The fall of ancient Andahar was why the ancestors built the warning stones in the first place, so that no Wutar could ever be taken alive, ever again. Uma crouched against Isla's hot neck, her eyes burning with the wind and sand. Wild thoughts drummed in rhythm with Isla's rapid claw beat back towards the castle gates. The gods have abandoned us, but I won't. I'll never. The Yang army was a typhoon of blood and sand, the torches flickering inside it like the brilliant reptilian tongues of the lizards their officers rode. It was an insult for them to have come upon the Wutar in broad daylight, knowing they could not be thwarted. The Tar villagers who lived outside the castle walls flooded in from their fishing huts. In through the gates of Ulali as the gatekeepers screamed down for them to hurry. Hurry, help the wounded! For many carried the sick on their backs and on hasty travoy, even as they tried to herd in lopes and catlings as best they could, but it was chaos. Animals reared in all directions. Catlings lashed out. Some panicked scattering back down towards the sea. The warning stones began to fade towards silence. Kojo was tired, and the gates would close soon. Uma screamed into the wind. No, wait! Her ants were waiting. She knew they were. Isla, faster! Faster! The firebug flew from Uma's cloak, rising towards the yang torches, and the gates closed. Please, let me in! The shadow above Uma paused and then rushed away again. Please, please, please. There's no time now, the voice above her said. A gatekeeper she did not know. The gates are closed. And then the voice spoke to someone she could not see. The gates are closed, Kojo. You must see to your own. But Kojo came back and looked down over the edge. We cannot leave her to disgrace, she heard him say to the other gatekeeper. What of the healers? But the other shadow had already fled. Kojo leaned down. He was paler than Uma, with broad, scarred cheeks and eyes intent as nailheads. I know who you are, girl. Your mother was very dear to my family. The Yang army was deafeningly close. So close he had to shout down to her. Trust me, girl. Wait, wait there. I will be back. Isla paced, nosing Uma's back frantically. His eyes rolled with fear. She turned and flung her arms around his great, wide face clutching his fur rubbing her nose to his my isla <laughs> may we meet again isla closed his eyes uma looked up at the sky unsheathing the napped stone blade from her waist belt inside her cloak i will love you forever she hugged isla closer and then drove the blade up between his jaws she did it again and again as isla fell heavily down into the sand Red ran down all over her, warm and greasy, and then instantly cold. And when Uma rose up to one knee, she was wet with his blood. She turned back to the gates, trembling, and dared not look behind her. The dark, howling wall of the oncoming army. Suddenly, one gate began to creak open, its wooden joints shrieking. Kojo! Kojo! Uma rushed forward. The door groaned open just enough for her to slip through. And for just an instant, she smelled her mother's star of moss and stone. Kojo and the woman who'd stopped to help him gleamed with sweat from opening the massive door. Both their eyes were wild and glazed with fear. Together they forced the gates closed and barred them one more time. The woman ran back towards the medina, and Kojo clasped Uma. I will see you on the other side, child. Run now, and give peace to your aunts. Blessings on you. Bless me with your actions. They touched their foreheads together, quickly pressing their mouths to the sides of each other's necks in the old ritual. It was an adult gesture, the first time Uma had made it with anyone besides her family. She ran through the empty courtyard. It was muddy with urine from the panicked animals, garlanded with scarves fallen from the sick. Each was dark with gloss black moths, and catling after catling lay dead in the sand. Fish carts sat overturned, their wheels still spinning in the air while baskets of crabs drowned slow motion, and leather sandals all sizes lay about like dead leaves. Uma ran past open doors and windows, past the bodies folded inside over dinner tables and day beds. Blessings and cries rained down all the while, the aftermath of each one shaping a deeper silence. Uma would remember it as if her every stride turned an illustrated page. The wet, saturated light. Dust shivering down from the medina walls as the gang army roared outside Ulali's gates, screaming like the ocean. for blood. Their blood. Her blood. Uma ran, images searing into her as the pages in her mind turned. How barbarians would be trampling Isla's body. Right this moment how this moment would be rewritten by the Yang conquerors into barbarian songs that would outlive Ulali. Everything she'd ever known and loved, her entire world, would be reduced to a footnote in the Overculture's history. And now, in their last moments, she was failing her entire family just as she'd failed her mother. Bitterness flooded her. She'd bitten open her tongue. The ritual blessing murmured down from the windows above her, echoing in Uma's own blood, the words she'd yet to say to her aunts with mercy and honor. I do this with mercy and honor. This with mercy and honor and honor. You stood behind your elder, cradling them with one arm. And then with your other hand, you struck your blade upwards, between their jaws cleanly and fiercely, as many times as you could until they were gone. Quiet and free of any possible Yang dishonor. It was a gift to those who had sheltered and raised you, the gift of an honorable death. For Andahar was never to be repeated. Chapter 7 In Ulali's house of florists, Najwa and her mother stood at their tower window. They held each other tightly for what felt like an eternity listening as Ulali slowly screamed towards silence all around them. Najwa hesitated, and that was her first mistake. Now she was frozen. Finally, she managed to spit in the direction of the oncoming hordes. Yang butchers, she said, turning to her mother. The graceful older woman was a ninth-generation florist, a great lover of teas, free dives, and night swims she was Najwa's dearest friend. Her mother was crying. Najwa held the ritual knife, shaking. She placed her other hand against her mother's heart. We can't let them win. Her mother nodded, but did not move. I'm not ready to die, my Najwa. Nor am I, but we must be strong. Najwa leaned forward, pressing her fangs lightly to her mother's neck in holy farewell. The sweetness of their flower arrangements all around them, Of the sunlight warm on the castle stones, she did not want to die either. The florist hugged her daughter. How I've loved you, my dear. And I, you, will be together again soon. May the gods will it. Najwa's mother looked away, kneeling gingerly on the stone floor. And Najwa almost cried then. So that was the last time she would ever see her mother's face. She didn't trust herself to speak after that. But each time the girl tried to grip the stone blade decisively, the handle of it trembled in her own sweat. To make her mother wait for death was cruel and shameful. The florist's head bowed, steady, and waiting. Najwa bent and kissed her mother's hair with great mercy and honor. She brought the blade into position silently and then stabbed up, rivening the mind that had brought Najwa life and joy and so much love. Her mother cried out, or Najwa did, and as the florist fell to the ground, Najwa leapt out of the window, putting the knife to herself as she did. She wept free into the air. Her foot caught a vase of flowers, and the blooms broke above her as she fell, great, soft petals as tender as her mother, waking her up in the mornings for lessons, for walks in the garden. And so it was that beauty followed Najwa all the way down. Chapter 8 When Uma burst across the threshold, Inga and the ants rushed to her in relief. They'd already begun killing the animals and were covered in blood. There's no time, Uma said. They're nearly here. We'll finish it together. The chickens were terrified now, and they had to race after them and catch them up brusquely, sometimes snapping a leg in their hands as they brought each one to blade. Every beast, every fish, creatures they had bred and raised, loved and tended... The Yang would not deign to eat what was already dead, and so this way they would not feed the enemy army. Finally, their arms slick with blood and sweat scorching their eyes, they hurried exhausted into the coolness of the house, just as a terrible crack sounded from the castle gates. The ants sat in the library. Shelves stood high all around them, stacked with scrolls and leather-paged tomes shepherded by their families through the ages. The woman sat in a row on the wooden bench, calm as birds amidst afternoon leaves. I have made a stain, Leluja said, amused. And the woman laughed, for blood was pooled around them, and they knew their own blood would be with it soon. Uma felt as if she couldn't breathe. I will go last, Inga said, fiercely. As the next eldest, it was Inga's birthright to die after Leluja, To be spared the sorrow of watching her younger sisters die, if her sisters were surprised, it was not for long. Inga was an unusual woman. There came another crack at the gates, and the women pressed their foreheads together one final time, touching fangs to necks in a gentle cascade of farewells. Uma took her place behind Lelooja with mercy and honor. Laluja. She made the necessary motions quickly, and then Iyanla, Balu. It happened in silence, the terrible softness as each woman fell forward, and Uma rested them gently against one another. Then a roar from the courtyard as the Yang army broke open the gates. Uma moved behind Inga, but her aunt turned to place her hands firmly on Uma's slender, trembling shoulders. No, child. We will do it in the old way. Uma's blade arm jerked in confusion. Inga lifted her chin. I want you to drink from me, daughter. Keep me with you. She leaned in close. Her eyes were mischievous and bright. You will stay alive. Live forever. I... Everyone is gone now. Inga... Inga shook her head. Uma's voice rose. You haven't been outside. Everyone is gone. She tried to speak slowly, with respect, but there was no time. They would be captured by the Yang. They would be mocked and gloated over. Dishonored. But Inga refused to be rushed. There's a secret passage beneath the shelves. I've put the things you'll need there, below. You'll pull... No, Inga! I... I must die with you! Inga's faith in her was bitterly misplaced. Uma's eyes rushed with tears. My aunt, we must hurry! Inga continued calmly. You'll pull just there, and they will part. Fix them closed above you once you're below. Shh, now Uma. Listen to me. The spirits have spoken. Your path awaits. Inga tilted her head, studying the girl. If you will take it. All of Ulali is dead. All of us. You don't understand. There's no reason for me to stay. I won't. I will stay with you for a time, but you must be strong. You must live. The spirits have told me this, Uma. Uma burst into tears. She covered her mouth wretchedly. I don't want to. Oh, child, child. Our path is not for you. Please now as your last gift to me. Do this in the old way. Uma nodded miserably. She kept nodding as Inga lifted a horn vial from its chain on her neck and pressed it into Uma's hands. Fill this with my blood. You will need it for your crossing. It was hard for Uma to breathe. The air would not go into her lungs. Breathe out. Let it out, there you go. Good girl, Inga said. I do this with mercy. My Inga, Uma said, shaking. With honor, my teacher. Inga smiled. Quickly now. May we meet again? We will. Inga cupped Uma's head gently. Heal when you are asked. This is your task. You must make peace with this. Uma choked back a sob and kissed her aunt's neck. The familiar powdered sweetness of Inga's skin was warm as dried grass. For the first time in Uma's life, Her wise aunt seemed fragile. She bit her. The sweet drive of Uma's fangs as they punctured Inga's skin. The instant, sweet-hot woos of rushing blood. Uma drew back, startled by pleasure. Inga flinched, squeezing her niece's hand tightly, reassuring her. This was what she wanted. To die in the old way. Good girl, Inga said. The taste of blood seared into Uma with dizzying, delicious pleasure. But it was more than a taste. It was an experience. As if for a moment, she was Inga. She was the whole onrush of Inga's magnificent life. The force of her love for home and family, all her adventures and fierce loyalties, the lazy days spent at sea with merchant lovers... It all scrolled instantaneously across Uma's heart as she drank Inga in deep, starveling draughts. For a moment, she knew what it meant to be Maiden, assured Matron, a wise and happy old crone all at once, as all of Inga's delicious strength roared into Uma, and then abruptly went out. Candle notched, Inga slumped over dead. Uma staggered back, wiping her wet mouth, Suddenly all her sadness and fear were gone. And in its place was only a surging pleasure. A radiant, young animal strength she'd never felt before. And with it, a keening awareness that her first true drink was unskillful. That she'd only just barely peered over the edge of what blood drinks could do. She also knew with certainty. She was the last Wutar alive in Ulali. She felt it. The glaring absence of any other remaining Wutar soul within the web of stones around her. Yet she was more alive than she'd ever been. She'd seen blood drunks before, staggering around proudly in the alleys, drunk off some hapless yang they'd captured at sea. Inevitably they'd cause chaos in the Medina until they were led away by lawkeepers to sober up. Blood drinking had been forbidden for centuries, except in a rare healing ceremony here and there. Now Uma understood in a rush why some still dared. She understood why she'd always been taught that succumbing to the temptation was a terrible weakness. Because it was her nature. The desire for more, now that she'd had a true drink, was overwhelming. Birds flew, catlings crept, and vampires drink blood. Uma's only experience with blood before was when she tried to heal her mother not even knowing what to do. Aiko was already near death, so Uma only dared take the smallest possible drink, as little as she could and still share her energy with her mother. She remembered how Aiko had smiled, finally without pain as she crossed the bridge up into the mystery. The surge of energy had terrified Uma at the time. Now she understood that if she'd only rested her mind in the red cradle, it would have brought the both of them healing and clarity she wiped her mouth. She felt impossibly clear and lucid, as if time were a syrup she could pour back and forth at will. All this, and still only heartbeats had passed, for Inga's body was still slumping forward on the bench. Quickly, Uma pressed the open vial to Inga's neck, filling it with blood. The horn tip darkened and filled like a cocoon, and when blood ran over the sides, Uma stubbed the stopper in with her palm and dropped it on its leather string around her neck. She felt the vial swing, warm and wet, against her heart as carefully she adjusted Inga into a more seemly position with the rest of her aunts. Uma couldn't bring herself to leave them in disarray, but she was smiling. Even as she was aware of whistling thuds, battle cries, the roar of oncoming conquerors, the awful strangeness of these silent, familiar strangers now puddled before her. Ulali was burning, but Uma would not be burnt. Chapter 9 Tulu. There are numberless words in the Wutar tongue to describe the color red. The carnation film of rage as it fogs the mind to unspeakable acts. The watercolor brilliance of love and the gem colored pulp of fresh blood. The charry weight of blood mixed into a beloved's ashes for a tattoo. The shameless glory of the sun as she escorts her own self to sleep. All wrapped in scarves of hot clouds. And every Wutar's favorite. A black scarlet so beautiful it exists only in dreams. As an omen of good things to come. Red as only red dreaming of itself can be. And when the vampire first saw Tulu's caravan, she smiled. Its black scarlet coat could only be a good omen. After all, a Chiriclo who coaxed a color out from dreamtime must know something. The secret to Lamedo's signature red paint, Tulu knew, was in the layering. Let me show you. Here he is, a beautiful golden man, squatting on the banks of the Wai River, Scraping off fish scales, cooking them down and grinding them between the river stones. Flirting with Ogadai's cousins, who laugh at his folly but, sure enough, when they drive on. Following the migration of spring birds, Tolu's cart now carries the silvery watercolor hiss of moonfish. Like a captured star. And Tolu is the last one laughing. But he has further plans for Lamedos. He has never had a home of his own. He wants it to be beautiful and outrageous, a piece of heaven brought down amongst the Chiriclo. As he journeys with Ogadai's caravan, Tulu befriends Bloodberry farmers. They spend weeks helping the farmers with their harvest, dancing it into wine. Afterwards, the farmers help Tulu to dry and crush the leftover skins. And he glosses Lamados with shellac after shellac made from this, turning his wagon so red it makes your mouth wet to look at it. The final coat comes three seasons later during the Singfly migration. Swarms of Singflies fill the sky, feathery pink ghosts clouding out the sun from the edge of the Wutar's Evening's Kingdom all across Yang's Tansingland. Birds get so fat from singflies they can scarcely fly themselves, and the Chiriclo eat roasted birds for every meal, and almost get tired of having full bellies. And still the sky is filled with the insects. Tolu has met ocean merchant Chiriclo who swear up and down they've even seen clouds of singflies making passage across the sea. And perhaps they have, but no one believes the ocean-going Chiriclo. They're all half-bastard yang. Raised in royal chalice, with their ships handed to them as birthrights, not like Tulu, who has made his own landship from wood he chopped and split and shaved and nailed together himself. Even the nails and sinews holding Lamados together, he made with his own hands, and from the dust of dried seeing flies, Tulu concocts his own final shellac, and Lamados sings with captured light. A black vermilion so perfect it aches to see it. A red singular in all the waking world, defining everything around it. And Tolu will never make another. Inside Lamados, the executioner piles every creature comfort imaginable. Elegant earthen pots, thick silky feather cushions, herbs and resins to sweet the air. And of course... He has trunks filled with vials and treasures from coast to coast to sell in the wake of his new trade. But now, Tulu sleeps on the dirt. Sprawled outside Lamados as if milk drunk, stars slurring across his dreams and sharp stones stabbing up into his back. For Tulu knows he is most himself when he is performing, even though he hates himself for it. His parents were peaceful traitors. He'd never even seen an execution until Ogadai took him under his wing. This makes Tulu's talent all the more disturbing, and that Ogadai recognized it in him. When Tulu was just an orphan beggar boy desperate in the street, Pow Red would sing to him. The man before a bloodthirsty crowd, waving his staff all covered in the scalps of the dead. Blood singing to him, fogging his mind. For that man, the executioner, is the real Tulu. The truth jaws across his heart like an open wound. When Tulu isn't on stage, he's waiting to be. His smile is a mask, hiding his true self from the people who love him. He is only ever waiting for the stage again, and yet they love him. They think they love him. But what they love about Tulu is only his mask. Because everything Tulu says is the mask. His skin is the mask. It means nothing. It only wants to be shed, reeking itself in blood and splintering bone to throw open the robe of pretense and set free his monstrous soul on the Executioner's stage. Dealing death, as ordained by the King. And this is what feeds their whole family, Ogadai's oh, whole caravan. Tulu's gift for carnivalry provides them all with comforts, finery, opportunity for trade, and most importantly, safe passage. For even a Chiriclo caravan cannot be harmed when an executioner travels with it. And though they travel with two executioners, now it is always Tulu who holds the stage, for his is the gift. Yet now, they've brought him to Palmstone to heal him. To save him. What? From himself. From the food he has put in their bellies. Without this aching hole eating him up from inside. This monstrous, roaring absence in him which Tulu loves. Without it, there's nothing he cares to live for. He lives from stage to stage the devouring in him spreading its wings, growing wilder, asking to stay. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I love doing this, but I need your help. Your reviews will help get Evening's Kingdom published. Every single review means so much to me because it means the world to know you're out there listening. And two, each one is evidence to the gatekeepers that you love this story and want more. If you're a creator or an entrepreneur yourself, you know how much reviews help, and so I thank you. To leave a review, please subscribe via Apple Music. Scroll down and click five stars. (laughs) Any words you'd like to leave as well would really help. If you're listening via Spotify or another platform and don't use Apple because you don't have an iPhone, well, borrow a friend's phone (laughs) and leave a review that way. And thank you. I have much more ahead for you regardless. I've recorded all of book one for you here, and book two is coming out soon. And if you'd enjoy some extra free content as well, Please visit me at eveningskingdom.com and subscribe to my free email list. Not only will you receive an automated note when each new episode is out, you'll also receive free, unlimited access to my other audio stories and guided meditations from my email subscribers only. So that in the great grand someday, should this epic quest ever become a real book for you to hold in your hands and enjoy, I can email you and let you know. This is Polishment, and thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.